Thanks. It is uh, fun to be back with you. I really do consider it a, a privilege to be here. Uh, it's a special day. I, it seems like nowadays, you know, I only, I only wear suits and ties for weddings and funerals. And I thought, this is a big occasion. And Rod says, you don't need to wear a tie. I said, I'm going to wear a tie anyway, just, just for grins, because um, this is a special day. I mean, the appointing of elders in cities was a defining mark of a New Testament church. That, that's a mark now that Gateway shares with churches over the millennia uh, in the establishment of elders as the leadership, a plurality of elders as the leadership within the church. And while the message itself is, is for the church to some degree, the message is really kind of being directed at, at Ed, and it's being directed at Matt, and it's being directed at Albert. The rest of you just get to eavesdrop, okay? Um, primarily, the charge this morning is, is for them as they step into this role. Each of these three men's my, my path is, uh, the Lord has seen fit for our paths to cross in various settings, in various contexts. Um, and as one who has been privileged to serve in an elder capacity for, for 25 years now, I, I'd like to share a few things this morning that have helped shape my thinking as it relates to pastoring and my ministry as a shepherd. Um, some of you might know my background. I suspect most don't. Before coming up here to Northern California to join the staff of North Week Church in 2007, I spent uh, six years in the Navy outside of high school. I spent 24 years after that in a manufacturing business and uh, was very active and involved in our local church down in Southern California, a church called Placerita Baptist Church. Uh, I was uh, made a deacon there at the age of 26. I was made an elder there at the age of 28. We were a very young church, as you might imagine. Um, and, and I became chairman of the board in 1995 and served in that capacity for 12 years prior to coming up here. So I've kind of walked in your shoes, in a manner of speaking. I don't come to you this morning as a, as a professional elder, someone that's in the, the vocation of being a pastor, but as one who has pastored as a non-paid staff member, one who has pastored in a lay capacity, if you will, and who treasured every moment of it. Um, I know that this past fall, uh, you guys spent a lot of time, Rod took you through a number of passages that deal with the issues of the eldership, what an elder is, what an elder does, what an elder's character qualities are to be. And what your response as a body is to be to the leadership that is established by the Word of God. So I, I really, I, I don't want to necessarily just rehash everything that he has said, but by some measure, because we're commissioning these men this morning, there, there may be some duplication. I just pray that the Spirit of God will use the Word of God and, and this earthen vessel of God to maybe drive home some truths and drive home um, things a little bit deeper. Um, let me ask a rhetorical question as we start this morning. Uh, when considering the issue of leadership, does the position find the person? Or does the person find the position? Think about it in many different contexts, but specifically this morning in church leadership, we kind of have to wonder sometimes, does the position kind of find the person or does the person seek out and find the, the position. Paul told Titus that he was to do something in every city. What was that? He tells Titus to appoint elders in every city, which kind of begs for the former, that you have to go out, you have a position, you have to go out and find people for it. 
But this same Paul also told Timothy um, that if anyone aspires to the office of an elder, it's a noble thing that he desires to do. In that sense, you, it, it begs for the, the latter, that it's an aspiration. It's a sense of calling. It's a sense of pursuit on the, the part of an individual. So does the position find the person? Yes. <laughs> or does the person find the position? Yes. Both are true biblically. It's a both and situations. Uh, and, and in either case, the scriptures teach that church leadership is not for the reluctant. Church leadership is not for the passive. It's not for someone who's willing for a time to, you know, to give a little bit extra to the needs of, of the church or for the cause of Christ. No, it's, it's for the man who's willing to spend and be spent for the cause of Christ, for the glory of God. It's, it's for the man zealous for God's glory and not for his own. That's the picture that the scriptures paint for us. And, and while some would say it's hard to find men like this, when you do, you know it. You know it. You know that these are men that have been called out by God. It's hard to hide the gifting of God. And those that are gifted in such a way likely will already be using those gifts within the context of a local body, the body of Christ, whether they have the title or not, and the body will recognize that. I think this morning that's really kind of what's happened in this convergence of aspiration and affirmation. Elders are born, and such is the case with Ed and with Matt and with Albert. Um, so with that as an introduction, I want you to turn in your Bibles or scroll your electronic devices or however you get there these days to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, Pastor Rod preached from this text just a few months back, um, but for us it will serve really as kind of a launching point more than it will a landing pad. Uh, I just want us to kind of glean some things and to look at some principles that we find for us in the Word of God and to challenge these men, challenge you as a body in that regard. So 1 Peter 5, we'll just be looking at the first three verses. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And indeed, as the title and just the main theme of our message this morning, examples to the flock. And to that end, I want us to look at three different aspects of eldering that I think are crucial to be good examples. The first would be this, would be the elder as follower. The elder as follower. Ironically, I believe that one of the most important characteristics of an effective biblical elder is that he is first and foremost an effective follower. He's an effective follower of Christ. Peter's exhortation here in verse 1 is born out of his personal experience as a fellow elder. It's born out of his experience as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. It's born out of his experience as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter, in a sense, gives his credentials. He's been there. He's done that. And he wants them to hear his message. 
I mean, Peter was there in one of Jesus' most glorious moments here on earth, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, Peter was there at at the resurrection and saw, well, not there at the resurrection, but certainly saw the resurrected Christ. He saw Christ in his most glorious. Um, He also saw Christ at his lowest, at his weakest, a beaten and bloodied man almost beyond recognition who would then be placed on a cross. Peter saw him in glory. He saw him at the depths. And in those, in, in, that two, in those two senses, he comes to the elders here as he's writing this letter and charges them that this is kind of what life is going to be like. This is what the spectrum of shepherding the flock is going to be like. We know that after Peter's tragic denial, he was wondrously restored. And he would go on to live a life that was marked by the very suffering and the very glory he had witnessed in Christ. And that's the perspective he speaks from. In this passage, he is encouraging elders to lead in specific ways because he has already learned what it is to lead. Peter speaks from example, and he wants them to follow his lead in the same way that he followed Jesus' lead. It's not just an admonition for elders. That's an admonition for us in life. And yet, in particular, he drives this home for the elders. Jesus came not to pursue or accomplish his own will, did he? He came to do whose will? He came to do the will of the Father. He said what he came to do was the will of the Father, the will of the one who sent him. At its most basic level, the call to salvation is a call to drop the nets and to follow him. The call is always about following. The sanctifying work of the Spirit happens as we continue that pursuit of following after Jesus, Paul told the church at Ephesus to be imitators of God. He told the church in Corinth that they should imitate him just as he also imitated Christ. And Peter reminds his readers that Christ has left us an example to follow. Uh, Again, I believe that we can make a good biblical argument that, that your fitness to lead others is in large part directly linked and measured by your ability to follow Christ. I mean, consider the alternative. Because as you've seen in the scriptures, especially from Hebrews chapter 13, it says that one day you men, Albert, Ed, Matt, one day you will stand before God and you will give an account for the souls for whom you had watch care over. But church, it says also in Hebrews 13 that one day you will stand and give an account for how well you imitated their faith and conduct. Mutual accountability, different responsibilities. Men, if you aren't following Christ well, then what will your people be imitating? What will they be, what will they be following after? If you are not following after Christ well, will they follow after your sense of style or your clever wit? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe your strategic planning abilities. Is that what you want people to follow as they follow you? No. Those are things, I think, that end up in the category of wood, hay, and stubble at the end. No, Acts 20 was read earlier, and I think it's instructive that in Paul's admonition to the Ephesian elders to be on guard, their first priority, their first priority was not to be on guard for the flock. Their first priority was to be on guard for themselves. 
Man, you need to be on guard for yourself, your own spiritual life. What are you following after? What are you pursuing? Their first priority was to be alert personally, to build a hedge around their hearts. And to that end, God commended them to the word of his grace. Godly leadership begins with godly following. You can't take a man to a place you've never been or that you don't know the way to. You lead by example. Follow hard after Christ. You'll give people reason to follow you. And that's important because a leader who has nobody following him is just out taking a walk. So you, you want to be giving them something to follow after. So that's the elder as follower. How about the elder as pastor? That's our second point. We'll kind of spend the bulk of our time here. And again, some of this will be a reminder or a refresher from you as Pastor Rod worked through this particular subject, the elder as pastor. Uh, I know that you three personally, and, and again, as well as the church, have spent a great deal of time here looking at the requirements for an elder. You've seen these titles, elder, or in the Greek, presbyteros. You've seen the title, overseer, or in the Greek, episkopos. You've seen the title, poimen, that's the Greek for shepherd. These are all used to describe the office to which the elder is called, and yet the primary activity, as we see here in 1 Peter 5, is to shepherd the flock of God. Shepherding the flock of God is your primary responsibility. Many think about it in terms of, uh, oh, the elders are the ones, yeah, they kind of oversee things. They exercise oversight. And verse 2 mentions that. But exercising oversight is not the primary role. It's, it's how the elder shepherds the flock of God. Shepherding, pastoring, that's your primary role. Not to be a business major, not to be an organizational expert, not to understand culture. Your primary role is to pastor. Your primary role is to shepherd the flock here. Rod explained that the responsibilities of a pastor-shepherd include knowing and leading and feeding and guiding and guarding the sheep. And I want to pick up on a couple of those and maybe just kind of add some, some personal thoughts to some of that. Um, first sub-point, kind of under the sense of elders as pastor, would be feeding the sheep. What does that mean? What does that look like? Mark Dever, he likes to refer to that as grazing the sheep. I like that. He talks about grazing and guiding and guarding um, the sheep. Uh, the pastor's first responsibility is to feed the sheep on the word of God. If a shepherd doesn't fulfill this responsibility to feed his sheep, then, then it's hard to even call him a shepherd at all. That's what shepherds do. The shepherd's job is to find green pastures and still waters for the sheep because without food, sheep do what? They die. Without food, the sheep die. As you well know, one of the distinctives of an elder is that he is able to teach. I know Rod preached on that. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to stand up here and fill a pulpit or you know, teach in a, to large uh, you know, stadiums or that type of thing, but he needs to be able to teach. He needs to be able to handle the Word of God. It's, it's one of two qualities that dif differentiate him from a deacon. If you look at the qualities of a deacon and the qualities of an elder, they, they match up with the exception of two qualities. One is hospitality, interestingly enough. The second is the ability to teach, being apt to teach. In that sense, uh, I don't believe the requirements intent is, is theoretical or hypothetical. I mean, I don't mean it's like you need to be able to, but you don't have to. In, in fact, if you look at Ephesians 4, 11, it actually links 
the gift of pastor and teacher together, saying that to be a pastor, to be an elder, is, is to be one who teaches. It's to be who one, one who is able to accomplish that. The gifts are found in the same individual. Then, then men teaching should mark your ministry. Teaching should mark who you are as an elder, whether that's one-on-one or whether that's in small groups or whether that's in a large group context. God has given you both the privilege and the responsibility to teach. That, that, that goes hand-in-hand hand with being a pastor. You know, there may be exceptions, you know, perhaps when, a, when an elder would not be teaching in an active capacity, but, but those should be exceptions. They, they shouldn't be the norm. Uh, you know, any, much like any other character quality of an elder would be a norm for you to just kind of not do for a period of time. You know, maybe, uh, maybe you say, you know, I'm getting pretty burnt out from not being addicted to wine. I think I'm just going to hit the bottle for six months, and then I'll come back. No, we, we wouldn't ignore one category or responsibility of what, a character, what the characteristic of an elder is to look like. Why would we ignore this one? Men, your, your role is to be involved and engaged in the teaching ministry of the church. And, and, and it should mark the general tenor of your life. There, there are manifold blessings, I think, that come both personally and corporately in fulfilling this aspect of your role to be a teacher of the word. Let me name a few. Um, anyone that's taught for any length of time knows that study requires discipline. There is the discipline of study, if I can even put it this way. Sometimes it's really hard to keep one's butt in the chair. Anybody that spent any time in the study knows that. You know, the world calls out for all kinds of things. Responsibilities pressed on you from all kinds of directions. But if you're going to be faithful, you're going to keep yourself there and you're going to do the work of study so that your people are fed well. And, and that discipline is profitable. It's profitable for you, and that will trickle down to your people. Your people will learn from that and grow from that. Uh, I, I think it helps you fulfill your role of being men of the word in prayer. We see that in the scriptures as a responsibility of the elder to be a man of word, a man of the word and a man of prayer. Um, one can hardly be effective in their teaching unless they saturate themselves in the word and bathe that in prayer. And those are our responsibilities, that kind of dependence is critical. I think teaching helps you to know your sheep. I mean, as you teach, you get to know your people, where they struggle, what they understand, what they don't understand, what makes them tick. You kind of get a sense of who they are. That's an important part of being a shepherd, is knowing your people. Lastly, I would just say I think it builds respect for you as a leader because authority is built on the foundation of respect. Authority is granted where we have and respect other people. Dever says that when followers respect their leaders, even though he calls them from their comfort zones and challenges them to deeper levels of commitment that require personal sacrifice, the fact that they respect him will keep their hearts open to the challenge. Men, as you teach and teach well, you will build that kind of respect, respect and that's critical to the ministry. It was about eight or nine years ago, um, one of the deacons at my, the previous church I was a part of there in Southern California wrote me an email regarding our approach and our handling of the building fund at the time. Now, as you can imagine, um, this, this is the kind of thing that can spark fireworks in many churches, right? You know, how you're handling your money. He actually believed that our approach and our handling was not only unwise but unscriptural. And he sent me a letter 
but I want you to listen to how he began, or an email, but I want you to listen to how he began this email. He writes this, I want you to know that I respect you as an elder of PBC, that's our church, Placerita Baptist, and have greatly appreciated your leadership ever since my wife and I joined the church back in 1998. I also appreciate your friendship and enjoy taking a very small part in your son Josh's spiritual and intellectual development at the Master's College. Please regard what I say below as an expression of my love toward you and the other elders at PBC. That's how he started the email. Do you think he had my attention? He had my attention, more so probably than if he had just gone and blasted. The fact of the matter was, you, I mean, think about it. He didn't go run off and tell the deacon board. He didn't start a petition with the church body. He didn't ask 25 other people what they thought. No, he, he came to me and approached me humbly and with respect because a foundation of respect had been built over the years. You being involved as a, as a teacher of the flock will help you to earn that respect. And ultimately, once we'd had a chance to talk, he realized he'd made some wrong assumptions about certain things. And it was resolved very well. Again, some churches, that could have been explosion time. In this case, that respect had, had forged the opportunity um, to handle it in a very God-honoring manner. Uh, men, it's important that you're involved in grazing the sheep, in feeding the sheep. It's also important that you're involved in guiding the sheep, in guiding them. In, in addition to being fed, sheep need to be led. And in order to lead sheep, where must you be? In front. In order to lead anything, in order to lead sheep, you must be in front. What does that mean practically? What does that mean spiritually? Let me share four areas where I think your leadership can and should serve as an example to the flock. And again, each of us that are in the body of Christ, these are things that we should be emulating as well. The charges to them in particular for this Sunday, but these are things that we should all be about. First, I think that you should serve as an example to the flock in your service. In your service. Mark 10.45 tells us that Christ came not to be served, but to what? But to serve. He came not to be served, but to serve. And of course, that begs the question, I suppose, can one both humbly serve and strongly lead? Can you find the same characteristics in a single person? Christ is a pretty good example of that. Strong leader, humbly serving, and I think he models that for us. Uh, I think it's fair to say that there should not be a single ministry in the church that an elder is unwilling to do. There may be things that you are unable to do, but there's nothing that you should be unwilling to do. Uh, I love what Spurgeon says. He says, certain men might have been something if they had not thought themselves so. I like that. Certain men might have, might have really been something if they hadn't thought that they were really something. Um, back in the day when we had uh, church work days, um, we used to, the deacons would kind of organize a work day, and then they'd encourage people to sign up, and, and even families to sign up for what task they wanted to tackle on the work day. And, and I remember even uh, when I was serving, and maybe even especially as I was serving as the chairman of the board, I would sign up, and on more than one occasion signed us up for bathroom duty cleaning the bathrooms, getting down and scrubbing the tile and, you know, doing what it takes to get the bathrooms. And I remember, you know, my oldest son, he was young at the time, but I remember him asking, Dad, what do you pick the bathrooms for? I was like, you're chairman. Come on, don't you have pole around here? Don't you? I said, that's exactly why I picked the bathrooms. 
Because there's nothing that we should be unwilling to do or no way in which we should be unwilling to serve. And I wanted to use that as a teaching opportunity for them. A title doesn't give you prestige. A title basically just gives you a title. People will acknowledge you as they see your love for Christ and as they see your service for him. And that's really our second thing, in your love for the Lord. You should be examples to flock in your love for the Lord. This is not something you do for show. I mean, the Pharisees and the scribes were masters at that, right? I mean, they had the whole ostentatious show thing down. Rather, love for Christ is simply to be part of the fabric of your life. It's to represent who you are to that end. What, what does your personal devotion life look like? Is there, is there an attractiveness to your walk that causes others to want to follow? Or, or is it like the one church member who said that they follow their pastor, but only out of curiosity? Um, you don't want that to be the case, right? You, you want them to be following after you as you follow after Christ, and they see your love. Jesus would commend the church at Ephesus for many things. The church where Paul spent more of his ministry life than any other church that he was at, where he left Timothy, so Timothy could be there cultivating in them the things they needed to know. He, he commended them for many things, but in Revelation chapter 2, he condemned them for one big thing, which was what? They had left their first what? They had left their first love. They had left their first love. Time may temper the emotional zeal that we knew at the first, but it should never quench the joy. In fact, walking with the Lord for many years should only serve to fuel our passion for the things of Christ. People should see in you a depth of maturity and a depth of joy that they don't necessarily see in others and that they long for themselves. And if you should find that your love for the Lord has maybe waned a bit, it's possible it's because your love for the Word has waned a bit. That would be the third thing. People need to see your love for the Word. Several years back down at our church in Southern California, I was doing the, the church was doing a series called Pursuing Christ, and, and they kind of picked up that theme in a variety of different areas. And the subject that I preached on one Sunday evening was pursuing Him in our public worship. And I used Psalm 66 as a text. Matt read that at the very beginning of the service. Um, if you were to reread that or look at that later on this afternoon, you'd see that the psalmist talks about the need to fervently praise, not just moderately, not just, you know, okay-like. No, fervently give our praise to God. It talks about eagerly testifying of His works in my life. That's what the Word should drive home in us. And, and, and our love for the Word is cultivated by our time in the Word. It's no secret to anybody that knows me well that I, that I love to fish. I don't do as much of it, certainly since I moved up here, than I did when I was in Southern California. But you get me talking about fishing, you get me fired up. You get me talking about going down to Baja and, you know, fishing for, for big game down there. Um, and there, there's nothing like it. I mean, if you're not a fisherman, I apologize. But if you are, you know what I'm talking about. It's like the biggest adrenaline rush you've ever had when you're using bait bigger than most people actually catch when they're out there fishing, and, and you just feel that bait swimming, 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 and you're letting it go, you're letting it go, and all of a sudden you feel it get twitchy, 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 and all, you know it's being chased. And now the, when the big fish gets it, I mean, it takes off, and then you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, because the fish doesn't just like swallow it and put the hook right in the corner of its mouth, you know, grabs it from the side, and then it just runs with it for a while, and it, 
and it turns it and turns it and turns it and finally turns it and you got to wait like eight seconds slam the hook man i get all wound up i was telling somebody that you know he was just like grinning from ear to ear he was just smiling and i actually apologized for getting so you know carried away and he says no i love hearing you talk about it i love to see that kind of enthusiasm man is that how is that how i talk about the word of god is that how i talk about the things of christ is that how I talk about what he's shown me in his word? How much more should we talk about our awesome God than those kinds of things? I mean, the thrill of hooking a Dorado or, or the thrill of God changing a life. Uh, the thrill of hitting a golf ball 300 yards and having it land where you want it to uh, versus God's unconditional love. Man, we, we need to be men of the book so that it continues to cultivate within us that heart, that passion. Christ that's what should excite us that's what should renew us and refresh us and encourage us and strengthen us and as we cultivate our love for him and our love for his word it will cultivate a deeper love for the flock man that's your fourth area that you need to be an example in your love for the flock Lo loving the sheep is easy when the skies are blue and when the grass is green and when the waters are still but guess what? Life doesn't look like that most of the time. That's not what it looks like. And, and, and believe it or not, sheep don't always get along. And, and believe it or not, sometimes their wool gets a bit matted and a bit soiled. And they can have a tendency to wander off. And you can be an example to the flock of the love of Christ by your people, by knowing your people and by loving them well. To love them well, you need to know them well. You need to have intentional conversations. You need to be involved and engaged in people's life. I remember there was an individual that I knew at our other church down south, and I had known him for quite some time. He was a preacher's kid. Um, had uh, come to our church from a different part of the country. Got involved on the worship team. Um, loved sports. Quick-witted guy. I mean, knew him for years. Had conversations all the time, um, knew the family well, engaged with them a lot in a lot of different arenas, um, and was literally shocked when I got a call from his wife telling me, um, or from him, and I went over to their house telling me that he had had a homosexual affair. Um, he battled with it most of his life, he said. During the course of the restoration process, during the course of meeting with him and working with them, um, I brought up the subject of the sovereignty of God in all things to which he soundly rejected. And ultimately, we both came to the conclusion that he was not saved. He was not a follower of Christ. He didn't care about the things of Christ. I had known him for years. I had served with him and done all kinds of stuff with him for years. And I didn't know him at all. And we can't be like that. As shepherds of the flock, that was a wake-up call for me. It, it, we, we need to know our people. We need to be intentional in our relationships with our flock. We need to graze the sheep, guide the sheep. Lastly, under this point of elder as pastor, we need to guard the sheep. Uh, a faithful shepherd is always on the watch against predators and will put himself in harm's way uh, on behalf of the flock when the need arises. The predators in question for us mainly are those who teach a different gospel, those who teach a distorted doctrine. Jesus and Paul and John and Peter, and as you well know as you're going through in your series on Jude, all warned of false teachers. They warned of people who would distort things. 
churches and individual Christians can fall prey to this attack, whether from outside the body or inside the body. If the church at Ephesus, where Paul ministered for, for three years, needed to have men guarding themselves from false teaching, I'd say that churches in the Bay Area need the same thing. We need to have, and you men are the protectors, if you will, of that truth, the guardians of that truth. Think about the myriad of social issues that we we're confronted with, that we're faced with. What, you know, what should the church's position be on cloning? What should the church's position be on, on same-sex marriage or divorce and remarriage or homeschooling? Or should the church even have a position on any or all of those things? Your people, men, can be tossed about by every wind of doctrine from time to time. We can. No one's unsusceptible to that. The elder's role is to put a hedge about this church, to, to keep it biblically oriented, to keep it pointing to true north, to keep it pointing to Christ. Of course, that presupposes that as an elder, you're equipped to do that. <laughs> it presupposes that you are engaged in the study of the word. Never stop reading, never stop studying, never stop growing. You know, bank tellers, I'm sure you've heard, learn to spot counterfeit bills by handling real bills over and over and over and over and over again. So, men, as you are um, associated with the real, with the word, with the genuine things of the Spirit of God, the more you know the word, the easier it will be to spot the wolf. So, elder as follower, elder as pastor. Um, as I just finished this morning, considering elder as the learner, as learner, the, the non-staff elder has a unique calling, I believe. Uh, it's one that's different than the vocational pastor. And as one myself who's been on both sides of the table, I can speak to both the blessings and the challenges of pastoring and yet having a separate vocation. It can be challenging, but it can be great blessing. And so you might consider this section kind of a, the lessons learned portion of the sermon from, from my life or from my walk, hence elder as the learner. First, I would say this, and you need to understand, and this is for everybody. You need to realize there is no division between the secular and the sacred for the believer. There's no division between the secular and the sacred for the believer. We may use the term secular to describe a type of employment that's outside of vocational ministry. But, but what you do is anything but secular. It, it was never intended to be. Um, when we think back over the scripture, God gifts people with certain abilities. God places people in certain places. God gives them talents and wants to use them wherever they are. Think about the illustration of, of, of the church as a body. We're not all hands. We're not all feet. We're not all mouths or ears or eyes. Some of us are even hangnails, I hate to tell you. But, you know, we're all part of the body. We all serve a function. We all have a part to play. Um, where you minister on your job, where you work on your job, I, I'd love for you to see that as the most spiritually strategic opportunity you have for the spread of the gospel, for, for the sharing of the good news. One writer has said that the workplace is where a majority of a church congregation spends a majority of their time interacting with a majority of the unchurched world. The church on Monday is evidence, or should be evidence, that the church on Sunday is real. What you take into the marketplace is a great demonstration and witness to the glory of God. 
and the strategic nature of your calling to the workplace goes beyond just the evangelistic element. The fact of the matter is you will regularly interface with men in this church, men that are struggling to balance career and goals and finances and family and ministry. Pastor Rod could give them counsel in those areas, but, but it's a little bit different because Pastor Rod comes from a little bit different place as a vocational pastor. You're, you're doing both. You're working both sides of the, the, the fence, if you will. And so people will appreciate, and you can use that to your benefit as you counsel people in this place. Some of us are called out of the workplace. I'm blessed to have had the opportunity to be called out of the workplace, but it didn't mean that what I did before was any less important or any less a pastor. You're still being called in this day for this role of pastoring. God has you where he wants you. And so we need to embrace that. Secondly, I would say this, balance is, is both your best friend and your worst enemy. It's trying to find balance. It seems like it's probably all of our life's quest. I know it was mine when I was a lay elder from before. I had a, <coughs> I had a window of time. I'll give you a little snapshot into what eldering looked like for me during a little period of time in the mid-90s. I was uh, married, had three kids. My boys were 11 and 8. My daughter was 6. Um, I was leading a young marriage Bible study and a men's group. I was involved in the worship team and coached and refereed AYSO soccer. My job as a sales manager had me out of town about 30 to 40 percent of the time. Um, in 1994, I was to step off the board for kind of a year sabbatical and had begun an MBA program knowing that I would be on sabbatical so that I could kind of advance in my career at work. Um, Twelve days into that sabbatical, I was pressed back into service at the resignation of our senior pastor, who was one of my closest friends. Um, the very next day, we had the Northridge earthquake, the big earthquake. Think Bay Bridge, you know, think what you had here, you know, maybe multiplied even a little bit. Our company, our business that I was a part of, two miles from the epicenter, nearly shut down our business. Um, in the months that followed, things got pretty squirrely at church. Much of my time was just trying to spend, keep the church from imploding. Uh, and then our board chairman and my best friend, whose wife was best friends with the pastor's wife, ended up stepping down and leaving, so I assumed the chairman role. Oh, and my wife's dad was dying of Parkinson's. That was, uh, yeah, so that's like a little window into what shepherding looks like in real life, what being a pastor uh, on a lay capacity looks like in real life. Li life happens. Now throw into that the spiritual dynamics that come into play when you assume this role, which I can tell you, and for those that have been there before, you know it's a different kind of dynamic. You're taking on a mantle of responsibility and authority that the enemy doesn't like. You, you, there will be times when things will feel out of balance, and guess what? They will be. They will be. Know that up front and pray for balance on the whole. Look for balance on the whole. Invest where you need to invest for the sake of the body. But, but then don't let the other things just fall by the wayside. Likely what it will mean is sacrifice of your own personal pleasures, of your own personal desires for the sake of your family and for the sake of the ministry. But that's what you're signing up for. Being a shepherd isn't a part of life. Being a shepherd is a way of life. Thirdly, I'd say this, keep the main things the main things. I remember telling a group of men back in 1998, right about the time that I became an elder, that the Lord had really burdened me. Um, it kind of laid it upon my heart to make decisions today that would prevent regrets in the future. 
In reality, that's the only time you can make those decisions. You can't make the decisions in the future to prevent the regrets in the future. You make the decisions today, how you're going to spend your time, what you're going to do with your family, what's going to be important. Um, for me, it meant adjusting my routine. I, I had instituted back then a date night, which was Wednesdays, with my wife. We kept that all the time. Um, you, you need time with your spouse, one-on-one, regular basis. We didn't always go out. Sometimes we just stayed in, but we, just, we spent the time. We found the time. We made the time. Men, you need that. If you don't have that, it has to be built in. When my children were smaller, I started going to work earlier and earlier and earlier so I could be home for dinner. That was our family time. That was, what, that was what we geared around. And, you know, it didn't make a difference if I left the house at 4 o'clock or if I left the house at 6 o'clock in the morning because they were still in bed. But if I got home at 6 instead of 8, that was huge in my children's life. You may have passed that. You've got young little ones. I don't know where your you know, children are, but we have to make those decisions. We have to make those sacrifices. You know, again, back in the day, I used to wake up and get up about four or quarter to four. I'd spend the first two hours of the day in study and Bible reading and prayer and doing eldering stuff. And then I'd start the work day just just when I had to do it. That way, when I was home at night, I had time for family. I had time to engage. Sure, hospital visits and counseling and various things come up, but but you build in the margin. That's that's what we all need to do as as followers of Christ, right? And try and try and build in margin for the things that are important. And sometimes that means personal sacrifice. Uh, I'd say this, two qualities that ought to mark you, conviction and humility. Conviction and humility. Pastor Rod and this church does not need yes men. He doesn't need yes men. He doesn't need people that just agree with everything he says. He needs faithful men who will tell them what they think because God's given them a good head on their shoulders. He's given them a grasp of the word. He needs men that will tell him that, men of conviction who will keep God's glory and the church's good in the forefront of their thinking. But by the same token, he also needs humble men, men who will check their agendas at the door, men who will lay those things aside, the more concerned with preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace than they are getting their own way. That's, that's a good model for you as a congregation, um, humble and yet having convictions. I pray humility will be the mark of your leadership. I think it's important to remember as we're kind of closing here that there are at least three sides to every story. Remember that. Hang on to that. Every one of you remember that. There are at least three sides to every story. Every conflict has at least three. Most people say, well, there's, there's at least two sides to every story. You know, let's just say in the context of a marital relationship, it's the husband's side and the wife's side. What's the third side and the most important side to that story? God's side who is the only one that sees it absolutely perfectly and has all the facts in order and knows everything well. Strive to see God's side. Strive to see what God sees and how He understands. You know, Don't be quick to judge, even when you know one of the people really well. In fact, in that time, be really quick not to judge because you'd be tempted to kind of come in alongside of someone that you know well. Work hard to see the other point of view because each usually has validity. These are things to remember. Lastly, I would just say that leadership has a cost. Anybody that's been there understands that and recognizes that. Self-sacrifice is part of that cost. That must be paid daily. Loneliness is part of that cost. Think about Moses. He paid the price for his leadership. He was alone on the mountain. He was alone on the plain. He was misunderstood and he was criticized. And yet he was God's man giving God's message 
criticism. It, you know, it doesn't matter ultimately what happens to us, but our reaction to what happens to us is of vital importance. People will not have all the facts when they'll make their <laughs> feelings known and their voices heard. Your reaction to those people is what's vitally important. Recognize it could come. Lastly, I would even say fatigue. Fatigue. <laughs> There's a quote I read one time that says, the world is run by tired men. Um, th- there are times when it just, it just can wear on you. It can take a toll. Um, but mediocrity is the result of never getting tired. You want to you you just let things kind of go and, and, and be average, that's great. But, but I think God calls us to something excellent. He calls us to something more. And there are times when it will be tiring. But I like what Moody said. He said there were often times that he got weary in the work, but he was never weary of the work. And I pray that will mark you as well. I know for me, whether it was in a paid, in a paid basis like it is now or whether it, was, whether it was in a lay capacity like it was then, th- there's nothing in life that I would rather do than minister and serve and pastor faithfully in a local church. If I could figure out a way to, you know, how to make a living fishing, I might consider it. But the fact of the matter is, I, I can't. This is what God has me in, and there's nothing I would rather do. And listen to Joseph Stoll in closing as we think about this concept of being an example to the flock. He says this, There are several elements within a shepherd's ministry that facilitate and fortify a progressive behavioral conformity to the principles of Christ. The most powerful is the example of the shepherd. Everyone else can consistently fail, but if the shepherd projects a positive and real and consistent example, of what it means to be a believer conforming to the image of Christ, then there will be a powerful compulsion within the body to grow as the shepherd is growing. As shepherds, we will either be their example or their excuse. By God's grace, I I pray for Albert and for Matt and for Ed that you would be those kinds of shepherds, examples to the flock and not excuses. Let's pray. Father, we are, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for the way in which you fit your body together and for how you have uh, brought these men to this place, how you brought this body to this place to acknowledge and affirm your working in their lives. Father, I do pray that they be men of conviction and yet men of humility. I pray that they would be men of the word, men who love you and, and whose love and, and passion for the things of Christ is contagious. Father, I pray that they would be men that know the flock. And um, God, may you continue to bless this group of people as they follow you. Father, it's been so, so exciting, so encouraging to see your hand of blessing upon them over these years. And we're thankful for these three. And we're thankful for this day. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.